If you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Does, does anybody in here kind of um, something rings a bell when I say Jeremiah 29? Okay, if you're here last night, just cheat. Bullfrog, Jeremiah the bullfrog. No, not the bullfrog. Um, Jeremiah 29 has one of the most encouraging, famous verses in it that, you know, we put on magnets, we put on bumper stickers, we put it on our fridge, we, we put it in postcards, we put it in mailings, and, and it's Jeremiah 29.11. And in Jeremiah 29.11, it says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You guys have all heard that. And, and so that, that verse is very powerful and very encouraging that God has a plan for your life, that he has a good plan for your life. He wants to give you a future and a hope. We've been talking a lot about hope and how powerful hope is and what it does to change lives and change hearts. And, and, and in context here, we're, we're going to catch this. I want you guys to back up now. And we're going to get um, Jeremiah 29 in context. We're going to get to verse 13, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And although Jeremiah 29, 11 gets all the attention, I personally feel like Jeremiah 29, 13 is the cat's meow or the, what else do, what do you guys say here in Utah? The schnizzle? No. Okay, wrong, wrong place. Uh, the what? The bee's knees? So um, verse 13 is, is that. But... The, the message here, and basically in context, what's happening is, you, you guys know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up in a pagan land captured by, by a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Okay? When, when they went down, they went down in a captivity that lasted for how long? 70 years. So for 70 years, God, God's people were conquered. They were carried away captive. They were enslaved and they were being judged for 70 year period of, of their history where they were carried into Babylon. And, and at the end of that message that God is going to bring here in Jeremiah 29, he's going to tell his people, you get to come home. You know, what's interesting about the number 70 is that the, the Bible says in the Psalms that, that it's given to a man 70 years. And anything beyond that is a gift or a blessing. And, and so there's this kind of idea that, that, you know, 70 years, and that's valid for us today, um, is, is a lifespan, maybe an average lifespan. Anything beyond that is a blessing. And um, so this idea that they were going to be there for 70 years. Lots of different reasons for the number 70, that not really being one of them or important ones. But, but what happens in the Old Testament that I want you to catch as we study through Genesis and Exodus, it's all a picture of New Testament living. You take the slaves that were in Egypt and every portion of their life is an exact picture of your Christian walk today on this side of the cross. Egypt represents the world before you were born again. They come out of the world or they come out of Egypt and they get saved and they cross the Red Sea in their in their baptism and their born again experience. And then they begin to wander around the wilderness and go through things that you and I go through that, that are a picture of the Christian living and walking with Christ in sanctification today. Then they enter the promised land and they go through the Jordan River, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Another occasion in the life of the believer. Well, here in the 70 years of Daniel, we get kind of this same analogy, the same metaphor that it represents the life that, that, that we lead on this side of the cross. And so we'll we'll see that as we go through. But the, the, the thing is. The, the title and really the heart of what I want to share with you guys today, last last night, we had some fun. Uh, I preached way over and I wasn't going to we we're going to make it nice and fun and short encouraging message and let everybody go have their new year's eve fun and i just kept preaching i told him you know the apostle paul he preached from the morning until past midnight and and a guy guy fell asleep sitting in the window because paul preached for so long fell out of the window and died so if none of you fall out of the window and die you could you could put up with a little extra 10 minutes on a sermon and, and i won't preach till past midnight like paul so just be thankful that paul's not here preaching but um that, that we get to go home you know, this life can be 
difficult. And I know for each one of us, we go through things, we struggle with things, we have hard times. And, you know, one of the things as a pastor, one of the jobs that I have is, you know, I get to talk to you guys and, and, and I'm called to do it and I love to do it and it's my heart to do it. And um, I signed up for it. I've, I've given my life to do it. So I'm not whining or getting under it. But you may know of some of the things that are going on and hard difficulties in people's life. But, you know, I get them all. And, and, and I love it. And I want to be here for you guys. And I want to serve you guys and love you guys. But sometimes it, it feels a little heavy, right? Sometimes you feel like, I went to this funeral one time and the pastor of a different church, and it was somebody I knew that were involved in a different church. And so I went to the funeral and the pastor got up and his message was, was this, life is hard and then you die. That was it. <laughs> and, and, you, you know, I think as as Christians, maybe if you're like me, we we can kind of buy into that sometimes. We can kind of feel that way sometimes. Like life is hard and then you die. And yet, you know, we, we want this Christianity to be real. We want it to work. I want to see it work in other people's lives. I want to, as I encourage people and pray for people and talk to people, that, that, that it's real and that it's powerful and that what happens on Sunday changes our Monday. Amen? Because if what happens on Sunday doesn't change our Monday, then it doesn't count. But... There's this, this underlying encouragement that God gives all throughout the word, and we're going to find it here in Jeremiah 29, and that is that we get to go home. There's this idea that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through. And, and you know what? There's so much joy and blessing and, and, and walking with the Lord. And as we walk in, in the footsteps of Jesus, there's no better place, and you won't find joy in life and fulfillment in life any other place than seeking after and following and looking for Jesus with your whole heart. And we spend so much time wandering off those footprints, trying to find what we're looking for. And the whole time Jesus is saying, they're right here. Just come back and follow these as close as you can. And you'll find those things that you're looking for. And as, as we go through. And so, um, the, 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 again, the heart is we get to go home. You know, I'm going to share with you guys. We'll open up before we get in this. I want to just share real quickly out of John 14. You can turn there if you want, or you can hang out here and I'll be right back to there. But as you guys know, I came here from uh, Yucca Valley, California, which is really close to 29 Palms Marine Base. And, and 29 Palms Marine Base is the largest marine base in the world. It's 982 square miles. And it doesn't have the most people, but it has the largest land mass. And so um, the church that I was at, we had, we had tons of Marines. And many of the, the people that were in the ministries that I led were Marines and Marine wives and families. And, and to this day, some of my best friends are, are, are men and women that I met um, while they were serving aboard, aboard the Marine Base in 29 Palms. And um, so, you know, there's this thing that goes back and forth between like Marines and army guys and sailors and Navy, right? Every, each, each branch according to themselves is better than the other ones. They're tougher than the other ones. They, they kill more people than the other ones or whatever it is, you know? And so there's constantly this badgering that's going back and forth. And I was always on the Marine side, of course, because all my friends were Marines. And, um, so I come here and it's army, but I'm, I'm kind of Marine at heart. And, uh, I kept a picture in my office, and the picture is uh, taken in San Diego, California, and it's a, it's a big, huge boat, and along the rail, there's a sailor, and he's in his full uniform, and he's got that goofy sailor hat on, and, and, and he's crying, and there's tears running down his face, and, and then, you know, sometimes Marines will come in my office, they'll, they'll just see the, the picture, you know, big picture, I keep it right behind my desk, and the, you know, laugh like I was making fun of the sailors, because the sailor's crying in this picture. And I have to tell them, no, that's really not the hard, not the reason why I have that there at all. I, I have that there for a constant reminder that there's men and women who are serving around the world. And, and, and the freedoms that I experience today is, is because of the men and women that are serving around the world. And, um, you know, always to thank them. But underneath the caption, it, it reads that the guy's on a boat and the boat is about 200 yards off, off the dock. And, and he makes eye contact with his family and his kids for the first time in nine months after a nine-month deployment. And he's bawling because he's home and he gets to come home. And there's just something right about getting to come home. And they want to come home and be in home. And, and that's what the Lord tells you and me in the message in all throughout the word is that, you know, when life is tough or when we challenge us or when we have faced, what the, what, one of the things he wants us to keep an eternal perspective and keep our minds and our hearts focused on is that this is not our home. And one day we get to go home. And there's something about going home. 
One of my favorite stories to illustrate coming home, a true story. There's a missionary and his wife who in their 20s left and, and went to serve a mission field in Africa. And this was legit like huts, mud floors, going to the well every morning to collect water, serving on the ground, indigenous, giving up all the pleasures of, of Western living and going and living indigenously and serving um, the people in Africa their entire lives. They stayed there and lived there and built ministries. And God used them to do amazing things to help the people in, where they were planted. And late in life, in their 70s, they were coming home or coming back to the United States after this mission and their health was waning and, it was, and, and they were coming home for good. And they, they, were, they were, happened to be on the same boat that President Truman was on as he was coming home from Africa as well. And President Truman had been on a safari, a hunting safari. And I forget what the number is, but he killed some ungodly amount of animals while he was there, you know, and he killed a hundred different species and different animals while he was there and all these trophies and all these things. And, and as the boat approached the dock and as the boat came home, the, the, the United States had thrown a, a equivalent of a ticker tape parade to welcome President Truman home from his safari and his hunting trip. And they had the bands playing and all of the hoopla and the fireworks and the confetti and this welcome home parade that was there to welcome the president back when he got back from his safari in Africa. And this man and his wife were on the same boat. And the husband said, honey, we've given our whole lives to serve God in Africa. We, we, we've, 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 we've given ourselves there. He went there to shoot animals. And this is the welcome home that he gets. And we get nothing. We get no welcome home. Nobody even knows we're coming home or who we are. And, and his wife so, so wisely looked at him and said, honey, we're not home yet. And that's just the reality that we get to go home and that home is heaven. And I guarantee you he's going to get that ticker tape parade and that band playing when he gets home. And so that that's the the, the encouragement that, that Jesus gives us. Now, look, if you turn with me to John 14, it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus starts John 14 with, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus tell his disciples? Who's he talking to? Context. He's in the upper room. He's washed the disciples' feet. They, 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 they've, they've had the, the Last Supper. And, and he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would he say that to them? Duh, because their hearts were troubled. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And what was their hearts troubled about? Now, these guys had, Jesus was going to be on the cross in hours. Hours before he was going to leave that, that room and that meeting and head down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas Iscariot would betray him. The soldiers would take him and begin his illegal trials and his crucifixion and, and, and his, his torture that he was going to go through hours away. And Jesus had been unpacking a ton of stuff for the disciples right before this. He tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. He had been telling them that he was going to die on a cross and that he had been telling them he was going to die on a cross and raise again the third day. He was telling them that one of them among their ranks was going to betray them and become a traitor. He, they, they were just got done arguing, the disciples among themselves, who was the greatest and who was going to ride shotgun with Jesus in heaven. And, 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 and so many things. And then he tells them that not only he's going to rise again, but when he rises again, he's going to go up into heaven and leave him again. And then he'll send the Holy Spirit to be with them. They have all these things going on. And they still don't quite get the crucifixion and resurrection thing yet. Took them a little bit to get it. But, but it's starting to click in and their hearts are heavy. And so the message that Jesus gives to, the, to his disciples when they needed it the most about having heavy hearts here on earth was you get to come home. You get to come home. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and if I go, I'll bring you again to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then we know Thomas said, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. And so the message of John 14 that Jesus gave the disciples was encouraging them in that you get to come home. You know, it feels like sometimes heaven is so distant. And you know, the, one of the goals of the enemy in your life, one of the goals of Satan in your life is to distract you and keep you from keeping that consciousness of, of eternity all the time in your hearts and lives. And that everything we do and everything that motivates us should be for the reality that one day we are going to pass from this life and enter into eternity. 
How many of you guys watched the video? There's several that are being made um, recently about all the deaths in 2016, celebrity and deaths, or read the list. It's really uncanny, really incredible this year how many notable names and famous people. Now, people die every year. The statistics are still the same. Ten out of every ten people die. Doesn't change. But these made the list because they were famous and, and well-known, and, but just on and on and on. I was going to read some of them, and I, and I got the list, and I'm like, just so many names, so many people, so many things that, that, that death is the great equalizer and that, you know, we, we go on. And, and just keeping in mind that that day is going to come. That day could come today, tomorrow, in a year, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years. But that day is going to come. You know, I always tease um, the, 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 the leader of the Grateful Dead. What's his name? George? George? Jerry Garcia. That Jerry Garcia, you know, Jerry Garcia led this re- this revolution of the Grateful Dead and people following him all over the country high on acid the entire time and, you know, all these weird things. And his band was called Gratefully Dead. And the year he died, I said, he's probably not so gratefully dead anymore. Where he's going, now God forgive me, I'm not the judge of anybody's salvation. Jerry Garcia could very well be in heaven because it has nothing to do with being a good person. It has to be doing with having sins forgiven. And had he made a confession at some point in his life, at the end of his life, and then repented of his sins, he's, he's going to be in heaven. But that, that day comes and keeping it in our minds about Jesus and that, that one day we'll be in heaven. So that, that's going to be the summation of, of, of the message today really for for Jeremiah 29. Turn with me back to Jeremiah 29. And, and keeping that in mind that the, that the crescendo I really feel like that God is, is getting to here and encouraging them is that, hey, you're going into a foreign land for a time, but you're going to get to come home. And we get to go home to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven one day. And it says, now these are the words of the letters that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rem- remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive to Jerusalem and Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah, the king of the queen, the mother, the eunuchs, the prince of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. And the letter was sent by the hand of Elisha and the son of Shaphan and Jemariah and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. So, historically, what happened? The, the Jews were called to let the ra- land rest once every, how many years? Seven years. Six years you'll, you'll plant the land, and the seventh year you'll let the land rest. And so for, um, and, and God said, miraculously, supernaturally, he would give them a bumper crop in the sixth year that would sustain them through that seventh year of rest. Now, you would think if I offered that deal to this group, six years, you will work. And in the seventh year, you will rest and take it off. Then you'll go back to work in the eighth year and do it all over again. And then when we get to 49, seven sevens, it becomes a jubilee. And you get another bonus year off the 50th year you get off and all the property and all the land and everything gets all the debts get settled in the year of jubilee. You guys would be like, yes, is it year six yet? We would take that deal, wouldn't we take a whole year off? But, but what, what, what Israel did through their history was in the sixth year, they got a bumper crop and they got greedy and they were disobedient. And, and because of their disobedience, they said, if we, if we plan the seventh year as well, man, we'll really get rich. They never did because uh, even though it made sense practically, bumper crop on the sixth, go ahead and plan on the seventh wealth. It never worked out because it wasn't God's economy and God wouldn't bless it. And so when we don't do it the way God's prescribed it, 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 it may make sense in the flesh. It's not going to make sense in the spirit. And you take God's hand a blessing off it. And it just doesn't work. And for 490 years, the Jews did not observe that seventh year of, of rest and let the land rest. And for 490 years, God's grace was being poured out upon them in forgiveness and in calling them and in, in, in telling them and in, in, in to do what God's asked them to do. And at 490 years, God, God judged the people. And at 490 years, after grace upon grace upon grace and chance upon chance upon chance, there came a point where God judged the nation. Do you, do you know when, when Peter asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, how, how many times should we forgive somebody? And Peter really thought he was being good. He probably put his chest down. He said, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times. I know most people would have do it only like twice, but I'll do it seven times. I'm Peter. 
Right, Lord? Seven, right? It's really like five, but I'll do seven. And Jesus said, Peter, it's 70 times seven. So how many times you should forgive somebody? What's 70 times seven? Mathematicians in here? 490? Okay. How, how long did, did Israel not let the land rest? 490 years. Jesus had done it. He had forgiven 490 years. And when he told Peter 70 times 70, he spoke from experience. And that, that 70 years was due. The time was due. They owed the Lord 70 years. And, and there came a, a, a pagan king to Babylon. Second thing in, in this Babylonian captivity that we need to understand, they owed God 70 years. So God took him out of the land and God got his 70. Okay? So in your life and in my life, God's going to get his 70, right? You can give it to him now or he can get it later. And I don't care whether we're talking about tithing, whether we're talking about serving, giving, um, anything, a call of God. Did God tell, tell Jonah to go to Nineveh? Yes. Everybody say yes. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Did Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Did Jonah go the opposite way? Did Jonah end up in Nineveh? Did, did God get his way? Or, and was there an easier way for Jonah to get to Nineveh than in the belly of the whale and coming out smelling like fish and skin bleached pale white and looking like Casper the freaky ghost running through the streets? No wonder why Ninevites repented. That dude running through the streets talking with fish, you know, and scales and bleached white and hair probably falling off from the, the acids in the whale's stomach. There was an easier way to get to Nineveh, but God got him there and God's plan. He's going to get his plan. You know, God calls us in, in giving and doing math that way. And, and God gets it one way or the other. And, and here, God was going to get his 70 years. And so the lesson is, is give God first fruits. Give God up front because we don't want him to have to get it somewhere else. We don't want him to have to put us into the belly of the whale to have his will done in our lives. We, we want to be able to do it. Okay, the second thing, as we go through this captivity, what happened in Israel's history that God is going to deal with in this 70-year captivity is the, the Jews struggled with idol worship throughout, throughout their history. Now, now, just a quick history of Israel without getting into history lesson today. The, 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 the Hebrew nation and what we have today as the, the Jewish people, do you guys know who they started with and where they started? One guy with Abraham, right? Was Abraham a Jew? No. Abraham was from the Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham's father was a pagan priest who, who, who practiced idol worship and, and false worship and Baal worship and Asherah worship. And, and, and God called this guy from a pagan land called Abraham and he became the first Hebrew. And from Abraham, what did God promise him? Your descendants will be as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And, and then from Abraham, Abraham, you know, the story gets to to Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. And then when Joseph calls his family to, to protect them from the famine and provide from them, how many people left where, where they were in Canaan at the time and, and went into Egypt? How many souls? Seventy five souls, the Bible says, 70 that left there and then God counted Joseph and his wife and his kids came to 75 souls and that was all that was the Jews that was Hebrews that was Israel 75 people go into Egypt and when they left Egypt 400 years later what was the number conservatively about 2 million and and from there we we have this nation this race of of Israel the Jews what we call the Jews today and 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 because it, it in essence started somewhat or it grew in Egypt where pagan worship is practiced and multi-gods and all this stuff. It, it became a struggle for Israel all the way through their history. You guys remember even when Moses went up on the mountain and he was up there for 40 days, what did the people do? They reverted right back to idol worship and they even got Aaron involved and they all, and, and they said, Aaron, Moses is gone. We, we got to worship these false gods. And, 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 and Aaron said, Oh no, we don't want Yeah, yeah, we got to do it. And Aaron said, okay, give me all your gold. And he got all the gold and he melted it down. He fashioned a golden calf and they got naked and danced around the golden calf singing born to be wild. As as Moses was was up on the hill and Moses comes down from the hill and he has the original tablets uh, that God with his finger wrote the Ten Commandments and he sees the people worshiping idols and he takes the tablets and what does he do with them? He throws them on the ground. Moses might have had a little bit of an anger issue couple times in his history. Although he was the most humble man that the world has ever known. How do we know that? 
Moses told us. And he smashes these tablets, and, and, and then all the way through, Israel went like this. And, and you, as you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you'll come into these stories, and it'll say that there was a bad king, and, 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 and the bad king, like Ahab, for example, at the period of Ahab, and then Ahab goes and takes this wicked um, pagan woman as a wife, or the queen, and, and Israel never had the title queen, but the, the, the wife of the king of Israel, and she's a pagan, and she's, she, she's instituting Baal worship all throughout Israel. And that's the story where we get it in Kings where God raises up Elijah and Elijah comes to the prophets of Baal or he comes to the people of Israel and he says, how long will you falter between two gods? Quit messing around. If Baal is God, then serve him and give him your whole heart. And if, if the Lord is God, then serve him and stop messing with these Baals. Which is it? Quit going back and forth between two gods. And you know what? We don't serve Baals and worship, but I think that probably be valid for you and me today. We, we, we bounce back and forth sometimes between worshiping the Lord with our whole heart and seeking Him with our whole heart and then not listening and not, not paying attention and wanting God not, not to really speak to us because we kind of like where we are and what we're doing that if He, w- if he would speak to us, it might change what we want to do. And you guys know the story, amazing story. Elijah pr- challenges the prophets of Baal, 450 in their idol worship. And he says, let's have a contest and we'll find out who's God. And when we find out whatever God answers by fire, let's just serve that God with our whole hearts. And the, and the prophets of Baal go first and they built an altar and, and they, they begin to pray and ask their God, Baal, to start this altar on fire supernaturally. And it goes on and on and on. And Elijah starts making fun of him. You know the story. And he's like, where's your God? Maybe he's in the bathroom and he's waiting on his wife to bring him the toilet paper. And, you know, he, maybe give him a minute. He'll answer later. Then he comes back a little bit later. Hey, maybe he's on vacation. He's in Tahiti and he'll be back in a week. And, and, and then it says the prophets of Baal, as was their custom, began to cut themselves. So this whole idea of cutting, it's demonic. It's nothing new under the sun. It's a problem in our society today. And, and, and I don't understand it, but it's a real pain and a real struggle for young people and, you know, people alike that, that, that have an idea that they, they bring some kind of comfort by cutting themselves. They began to cut themselves as was their custom and, and calling upon their God and wailing. And, and then it became Elijah's turn. And their God never answered by fire, of course, because he doesn't exist. Or if he does, it's Satan. And Satan wasn't going to, ultimately, it's Satan. And then, and then Elijah prays a simple prayer. And you know the story. God answers by fire. And he goes and he executes the 450 prophets of Baal. All that was just to illustrate that there was idol worship was a problem in the history of Israel. When they do excavations in Israel, when they do archaeological digs and finds and discover new cities and ancient cities where Israelis and, and Jews inhabited in, through the Old Testament, they find them riddled with little idols and little gods. But God's going to deal with the idol worship problem in the Babylonian captivity. And, and when they come out after 70 years, guess what happens from the time they come out? And so Nebuchadnezzar, roughly 600 years before Christ, 582 BC, Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and, and takes Israel captive into Babylon. From the time they come out of Babylon to current day, guess what is not happening or hasn't happened since in Israel and among God's people, the Jews? Idol worship. It's gone. Never, never back in history. It, God dealt with it, healed it, changed it. It's gone. And so that's the second thing God is dealing with. And, and, and you know, he's judging them. It's kind of a spanking. God's given them a little bit of a spanking. I don't know if we like that term or not. But um, the Bible says in, in that, that if you as a father, if you don't discipline your children, you hate them. How many of you fathers raise your hand if you just hate your kids? Nobody would dare raise your hand, right? Only one knucklehead in here. And um, we, we don't. I know you don't. Nobody hates. We don't hate our kids. We love our kids. And, and Jesus says, God, the Bible says, if, if we hate, if we love our kids, we we'll discipline them. And, and how much more would a perfect father, a good, good father, a heavenly father, not take his own advice and discipline his children if they need it? Because if he doesn't discipline us, he doesn't love us. You know, uh, war, uh J. Vernon McGee, one of our, our great commentators of, of years past, Bible commentators, J. Vernon McGee, he's still on the radio. He's got that old, that really hard, thick accent. You can hardly understand what he's saying. And, uh, but amazing teacher, amazing Bible expositor. And he used to say, sometimes God takes you out to the woodshed. And, and, and so God, in essence, is, is, is dealing with in love and spanking the kids, and they're going to go to Babylon for captivity. So verse 4, we get the letter. 
And it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away to Jerusalem, to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. So there's this idea that God says you're going to go into Babylon. Now, again, I'm not going to back up too far, but I have to a little bit just to help us understand what's going on. There, there were several men who were recorded, and if we read the chapters before and the chapters after, what you'll catch in context was that there was a little bit of a battle that was going on between um, the bullfrog here, Jeremiah, and not the bullfrog, Jeremiah and, and, and this other prophet and these other people who were coming and telling the people, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. God's going to heal this. God's going to fix this tomorrow. Just relax and everything's going to be great. And, um, and, and, and Jeremiah was saying, no, it's not going to be great. You're going to be there for 70 years and giving the word. And so there was these, these false, um, you know, prophets that were out there spreading lies that God's going to deal with. And Jeremiah says, no, you're going to be there in captivity for 70 years. So when you get there, occupy. And then he just gives some really great advice from the Lord. This is God speaking, right? In verse number four, how does it start? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So we're, we're reading the words of the Lord. God is speaking to his people. And he says, when you get there, build houses. Occupy. Jesus said something similar as I, I talk about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon to our 70 years on this side of the cross. We're not home. We're in a foreign land. We're passing through. We're not of this world. This world is not our home. So in essence, we're in a, a, a type of Babylon waiting for our time to come home and go back to the Holy Land and to heaven, you know. And, and so while we're here, what do we do? Is this, this advice, it applies. It's valid that you, you build homes. You, you plant gardens. How many of you guys plant gardens? Not me. I'm the worst gardener. I think I garden worse than I sing. I think I can sing better than I can garden. That says a lot. Um, you know, we'll get this plant. Someone gave us a plant one time because they were teasing us. And I guess always tease about I have the, the if it's not green, I guess I don't know what it is. But it is the, the least green thumb you've ever seen in your life. I can't, I can't keep anything. I go to Home Depot and house in Yucca Valley. We had this kind of walkway, nice walkway of a circular drive in the, in the driveway. And, the, and so I put flowers along it. And man, on a good, good time, I could keep them alive for like seven, eight days. I, I'd be out watering them every day. I'd do everything I knew how to do. And I could not keep a plant alive. Saved my life. Stopped trying and just stopped wasting money because I could not. And so somebody bought Lydia and I one of these plants. I don't remember what it was, but it, the, the story behind it was like, you can't kill it. Like it's, 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 it's just put it on the table in the house and it'll live. Nope. A week later we come home and that thing's like, I could even kill that thing. I don't even know how, maybe, I don't know. And, and, and so I, I don't garden, but you know, gardening takes time. Fruit in your life as a believer takes time. There was a, a little girl next door and her dad went to work and, and he gave the girl some chores to do. And there was a dead spot on the grass. And he said, hey, there's in, in the garage, there's, there's some seed and fertilizer in this bag. And you have to spread it out over that dirt spot. And, you know, and, and so he went to work and he comes home and he says, girls, did you, did you plant the seeds? And the little girl, the little four-year-old just remembered that, that she had went out that morning and spread those seeds. And she got so excited. And she's like, yeah, daddy, we did it. There grasses, there grasses, there grasses. And she ran outside to go see the grass that had grown in, in the, the dirt. And, you know, dad had to explain to her that, that, that it takes time. You plant and then you water and then you weed and then you till and you take care of it. And eventually we grow fruit in our lives. And so God says to plant today so that you'll bear fruit tomorrow, so that you'll bear fruit in the future. And if we're, t- if we're at today and we have no fruit, we get discouraged. And yet we, we have to plant today. We have to water today. We have to till. Maybe there's weeds in the garden. Maybe there's something in your, your, your garden of life that needs tended to, but we keep tending and we keep planting and growing. And then eventually we begin to see fruit in, in our lives from the Lord. And he says, take wives in verse six and begat sons and daughters and take your wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may increase there and not diminish. Now, I got really sidetracked on this verse yesterday. I'm going to try not to do that today. Um, but the, the Lord, you know, one of the things about Israel that's so unique, you know, the number one proof of a couple things, really, if I say number one, I'd be careful with that because probably biblical prophecy and the fact that God tells the end from the beginning and that God 
35% of the Bible is, 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 is future telling and is, and is prophecy that's moving forward. But, but the number one proof probably that the Bible is true is Israel itself. The fact that there is a nation, the fact today that we have a country and an, and an indigenous people called the Jews, number one proof that God's word is true. The, the, the Jews have been attacked and, and, and murdered and killed and attempted genocide from their history all the way back to the Garden of Eden to today. And it's demonic in nature. It's evil because Satan knows that if he can eradicate the Jews, if he can wipe the Jews off the face of the planet, the Bible is not true. And that the Bible and he can defeat God's plan by wiping out the Jews. Why did Hitler pick the Jews? Because he was demonically influenced and satanically empowered. And his hatred for the Jews was demonic. It was a part of the devil's plan to kill God's people and, and, and to eradicate what, what is today modern-day Israel. I, I don't know if you noticed, but do you know Jesus is coming back? Amen? And when, when he comes back, he's showing up in downtown Tooele, right? One foot on the Wasatch Mountains and the other foot on the Stansberries. Is that what the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. He's going to put a foot on the Mount of Olives. And it's going to split. And the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, they're going to be in a city called Jerusalem, not Salt Lake City, not Portland. They're, 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 God's coming back. He's sending his witness. He's doing his work. And it is all fulfilled. And all future prophecy needs to have Israel and Jewish people for it to come true. Correct? And, and yet all the way through history, Satan has tried to attack that plan of God. You know, Haman, in the, in the Esther, in the story, in the um, that... The, that he was going, it was genocide what he wanted to do. And he built gallows to kill all the Jews and genocide the Jews. What happened in Babylon, what happened in, with Egypt, what happened all the way through, Satan has been attacking God's people. And this anti-Semitism is a plan of Satan. But God has such cool rules and, and, and such a way, a supernatural way of preserving his people. He realized in um, AD 70, Jerusalem was sacked again. You know, 562 BC, Babylon sacked it. They went back after the next ruler. Babylon was, 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 um, was, was overthrown by, by Medo-Persia. And, and the Medo-Persian king, Cyrus, was, was friends with Daniel. And he allowed the Jews under, under Nehemiah to go back and rebuild. And they went back and, and they were there. And then the Romans came in after that and occupied Israel. And it was under Roman occupation during the time of Jesus. And in AD 70, there was revolts of the Jews under the Maccabees and, and, and the... Um, the, the, the Romans came in and completely sacked the city. And from that point on, is not, was not occupied again by Israel until 1942. When, when, when Aliyah happened and, and God brought his people back to Israel. And so, um, but in that, there, there's just a cool plan. And you know what's happened with them being dispersed all over the world that's so powerful and amazing? They kept their language, their native language. They kept their culture. They, 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 they kept their bloodlines. Everything about them as a culture and as a people remain the same. Have you guys met an Aztec lately? Have you met an Amalekite lately? Civilizations rise up and they die down. But not God's people. They, they, they rise up. And all those nations that have come against them from, from history past, from the Garden of Eden, they're, they're no longer. But God's people remain. And so he has this plan that they should have daughters and husbands. And he says at the end, so that you may increase there and not diminish very important that, that, that the, the population of the Jews would increase as they were there. Second thing, he says to have sons and daughters. I want to talk about that just for a minute. You know, one of the things is I, I hear Christian people and they say, you know, this is such an evil world. And, you know, and, and I, I don't know that we should be bringing kids into this world. This is an evil world. And I have a good friend and, and he's on a he's a bass player on a worship team and big church and you know, loves Jesus and, you know, just like every one of us, just a normal guy. And, and is of the opinion that, that he shouldn't have kids. He shouldn't bring kids in this world. Number one, Jesus is coming back any minute. And number two, it's this crazy, mad world. And, um, and, and just don't bring kids. Mary's a young bride, married for 10 years with no kids. They've been married about 14 years now. And about three years ago, after 11 years of, of not having kids because of that idea that we shouldn't bring kids into this mad, crazy world to have beautiful little baby. 
And, you know, and, and talking to somebody, there was a pastor, Skip Heitzig. He's a pastor of Calvary Chapel or Albuquerque, one of the biggest Calvary chapels in, in the circuit. And um, he, he was telling this woman kind of the same sentiment. Like, I know, I understand it's hard. And this woman kind of got in his face and she was like, you know, Christians, we need to be having pe- We need to be having kids, lots of kids. This is a dark world. And all the more reason why we need to be having a bunch of little light bulbs to go and light this place up. And we need to have Christian kids that are going to go out and, and, and share the gospel. And we need to raise good Christian kids and, you know, and, and get them out there in the world, sharing the gospel and be lights in the world. And Skip Heitzig was, was really convicted by that. And just that, yes, that, that's the best thing he's ever heard on, on this idea. Like God says and told the people here in Babylon, have kids. Those kids that, that, they, that God told them to have, what school were they going to go to? Babylon High, right? Babylon Junior High. What do you think was going on at Babylon High? It was probably as pagan as they come. And, and again, we have this other idea as, as Christian parents sometimes that I don't see all the time in the Bible. And I don't ever, you know, pinhole anybody or straight line anybody into any one right way or one wrong way. Um, but but the, that idea that we're supposed to have this Christian family and we put a big bubble around it so this big, bad, evil world can't get in and can't affect our kids and can't touch us. And we, we raise kids that are just sheltered and covered and kept from everything. And, sh- and, and that, that Christianity, maybe we'd be better Christians if we just built a whole Christian community and put a big wall around it and we didn't let the evil people in. And, and then we just stayed holy and wholesome inside this bubble that we've created. You know, you know what happens when we, we raise kids in, in, a, in that kind of don't let the world ever, ever touch them? And, and then, you know, at some point you're hoping they're going to move out of your house, right? You, maybe some of you, I don't know, maybe some of you want to live with you forever. Maybe like at 35, they're going to have to go out and get a job, right? And, and what are they going to encounter when they have to go out and get a job? What are they going to encounter? The world, the big, bad world, the evil that you've tried to protect them from their whole lives. And then guess what? They're going to have no clue how to act. They're going to have no clue how to interact and be a, and be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and to be wholesome. You know, you know, the gift and the goal in raising kids is, is to get kids to want to walk with Jesus. Hardest thing. You know, as Christian parents, as a Christian dad, and I do some things where I just make my kids do it, you know. But at, at some point in their lives, I, I'm not going to be able to make them go to church, make them read their Bible, make them love Jesus. They're going to have to make a decision for themselves someday that they want to love Jesus. They want to go to church. They want to serve God. And so, so the gift, the, 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 the goal is trying to raise kids that want to walk with Jesus. So in that sometimes, you know, I let them make decisions that are bad. I let them make decisions that are, you know, maybe not the best. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not like go out and play on the freeway. Not those kind of decisions. But, but I, I want to try to help foster an idea and understanding that, that they, they, need to be, they need to make a decision for themselves someday to walk with the Lord or not. You know, when we were back home, we had the option of private Christian school, and that's what we chose for our kids, and it was a great option. And, um, you know, and, and now that we're here, we, we don't have that option. My kids are in public school, and, and it's a struggle. It's a, it's a real struggle. I mean, it's a struggle being here, right? You guys know if you have Christian kids, and our Christian kids seem like they just don't fit in. You know, they don't really fit in with the Mormon kids. And um, and then you got the the other factor that's on the other side. They don't really fit in. Caleb, my son, he's a sixth grader at Overlake Elementary School, and he's got this little kid in his class, and he's like, yeah, I got arrested. I broke into a car, and I got caught, and I had to go to court, and man, I might have to go to juvie. I'm going to jail. Well, he's not Mexican. He's white. He don't actually talk like that, but (laughs) little white kid. And he, you know, but he's a little bad boy. You know, he's going to go to jail. And I'm like, Hey, don't hang out with that kid. All right. He's he's excited and bragging about breaking into cars in sixth grade and maybe going to go to juvie. And, and it seems like there's this like one side or the other that we, we don't really welcomed into or fit into, or this some of these kids that want to prove that they're not on this side and the holy roller side and they're bad and they're tough and, and, and our Christian kids don't really fit in there either. And I watch my kids and it breaks my heart for them, you know, and 
I keep encouraging them and praying for them and um, trying to encourage them that their identity is in Christ and that, you know, to serve Jesus and be bold for Jesus on their campuses and tell them stories about people who were led to Christ by other people who were unashamed of the gospel in a, in a secular setting and, and try to help them be a light in, in, in a world and um, be out there in the world. But they, yeah, it is tough. I know it's tough. We flounder. But again, just the point I think, and that I'm trying to make, and that I think I, I read here in Jeremiah and other places in the scripture, is that, you know, God, that, that we need to be out in the world. We, we need to be a light to the world. We, we need to allow um, and, and, and raise godly kids that are going to go out and share the gospel. And we need to help them develop some social skills that they're going to need to be successful in business and in work. We need to help them develop some people skills through um, through these kind of interactions, maybe with the world, because you, you don't want them ever to get tempted by anything in junior high and high school. But are you going to keep your kids until they're 70 from being tempted by drugs and alcohol? Are you? Does anybody think that they can do that? At some point, now, now what we want to do, we definitely don't want that to happen when they're not ready or at a young age. Obviously, we want to make good decisions. And, you know, like I said, when that little kid that I was talking about, you know, when he comes over to my house and plays with my kids and I get to know him, and then miraculously that kid just doesn't come around anymore. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden we don't see him anymore. I'm like, I don't know where that kid is. I didn't say nothing to him or his parents about, you know, I mean, I, I don't know where he is. And then we have other kids that are not perfect, but, you know, we got a little ministry in our home of, you know, uh, the neighborhood kids come over and I, I, I tell them on, I invite them all the time to come and try to make the house fun. And I tell them, hey, spend the night on Saturday night. But our house rule is if you spend the night on Saturday, you got to come to church on Sunday. And one of the neighbor, little neighbor kids, we led to Christ. You know, his family doesn't come to church. They don't know Jesus. And he came with us, started coming, hanging out with Caleb and went to a Levi Lesko um, thing that we brought him to church service down here in Salt Lake City. And all on his own, got up and went forward and asked Jesus in his heart. And, and went in the back room for prayer and, and, and other kids in the neighborhood that, you know, were trying to be a light to. But I, I think that's God's heart. And again, I, I, I'm not trying to paint anybody into um, my life, my decisions, my style, because that's not, there's not one way. Um, lots of good ways. But just that heart, I think, is what I'm trying to share of raising kids that have a heart to serve Jesus, want to share the gospel. And, and, and help them prepare them a little bit for the real world one day that they're going to be faced in and that, that make good decisions today that are, they're going to have to continue to make as they get older. Amen? All right. Almost done. Is it okay for the pastor to lie in church? I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. Look what he says in verse 7 to the people. This is advice to the people while they're going to be in, in Babylon. And seek the peace of the city where I caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. And so God wants them to have kids and be a light and, and be involved. And, and then he says, and I want you to pray for the, the city which you're in. And, and in the city's peace and in the city's success, you live in the city, you're naturally going to have success. And, and so, you know, for us as a church and as a people, there's multiple times in the instructions that God's going to give over this 70 years that people should pray, that Christian people should pray, pray pray for the city. He's going to tell them here in a minute. He's going to remind them again about another call to pray, pray, pray. We have to be a praying people. Okay. Um, I, I talk about it a lot, but really there needs to be some rubber that meets the road where, you know, on a daily basis, you have some kind of routine where you're praying. And I'm encouraging you to pray for our church as you pray, pray for our city, pray for our county. The call of the gospel as God plants churches and the call that he gave the early church was they were supposed to reach their, their immediate region first and then spread out and then spread out and then go to the world. To their Jerusalem, their Judea, their Samaria, and then to the un, it, uttermost parts of the world. And so for us right now, that's our Tooele County. That's, that's our area. Reach this area. And then as we reach, we can, we can begin to spread out according to God's will. But being praying for the city and having practical prayer time in your life as a Christian, the life of the believer, it's so important. You know, we had that, one of the practical things I share that's, that's practical is, did you guys watch the movie War Room? We saw the movie, and I saw it, and I got inspired by this building a place in your house that's, you know, a special place where you go and pray, and I thought, man, that's a really good idea. I mean, I should do that one day, and I don't know, I just never actually practically did it until I was talking to Trenton one day, and, and he told me he built one in his house. And for whatever reason, the light bulb came on that day. It should have came on a long time ago. But I, when I heard somebody actually did it, then I'm like, I'm going to go do it. I want to do it. 
And so I went home, and, and, and in Nathan's room, Nathan's got probably the biggest room in the basement, but he's also got the most traffic because you go in Nathan's room in the basement, and you go through his door, and right to the right is that under-the-stairs closet, you know, with a slanted roof. And then he's got cold storage closet also in his bedroom. And so we went into that little closet, and the kids had all their toys, their G.I. Joes, and they're getting a little old for G.I. Joes now. So we threw all that stuff in that closet away, and we built a little prayer closet under the stairs in the, room, in the house. I haven't actually been in there yet, but it's there. <laughs> and the boys go in there. They think it's cool. It's like their little, like, camp out now. I go in Nathan's room to wake him up for school, and he's not in his bed. And so I, sometimes they'll sleep with their brothers. So I go in the other two rooms, and now Caleb is missing, and Luke's in his bed, but I, I'm, I can't find the other boys. And looking around, and I go, and I open the prayer closet door, and they built this fort, and they got all their blankets in it, and then they're crashed out. And now I don't even look for them in their beds anymore. I just go in the prayer closet, and that's where they like to sleep at night. But doing something to, that, that's practical to promote prayer in your lives. And then it goes on, and he says, verse number 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. Two quick things. He said, Do not let the prophets which are among you be de- deceive you. Now, it's interesting that he calls them prophets because they were liars. They were false prophets, but they still have the term prophet. That's why we always take the term prophet and we always qualify it with a word in front of it, right? True prophet, false prophet. And and, and it's interesting that even people in the Bible that are called prophets, there's a warning that some of them can lie and are lying. And in this case, these were the guys I told you about that were coming and telling the people false prophecies. And and God warns them, don't don't let those people deceive you. And, And I've shared this with you guys before. Each one of you is responsible for your own deception in, in that, 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 you know, you're not going to get to God one day. And if I've been deceiving you all this time, you're not going to get to get to go to God and say, well, Pastor Chris deceived me. And that's why I blew it or did this or believed this or had that. Apostle Paul says that you should readily check those things daily to see if they're true. That you have to be in the word for yourself. You have to be receiving. And what we do here is, is encouraging and, and teaching. And, but check it and know it and, and, and verify it. And um, I don't have perfect doctrine. I'm sure everything I teach is, is not correct all the time and misquote things and missay things and probably have bad ideas about certain doctrines. But I have a sincerity of heart that, that wants to unpack the entire word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so you don't have to find a place. If you're looking for a place that has perfect doctrine, you, you won't find that. It doesn't exist. Everybody has a tweak somewhere, right, or something. That, but find, find a place where there's a sincerity of heart to tell the truth. And then just know that you do have a responsibility of not allowing yourself to be deceived by anybody, by me or anybody else. That, that there is a responsibility for you to be in the word of God daily and, and do that. And that's what God tells his people. And then he says, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. Quick point on dreams. So God, God brings it up. So we'll talk about it real quickly. You know, sometimes people put a lot of stock into a dream and they say, oh, Pastor Chris, I had this dream and there was like this red car and it only had three tires. And there was this really like crooked, windy road and I was driving on it, but I wasn't going windy. I was going straight. And there was an apple tree off in the distance. What is God trying to tell me? I don't know. You ate too many acidy foods before you went to bed? Your stomach's dripping? I don't know. Like, God can speak through dreams and visions, 100%. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, and he says that he will speak to us today, and he's doing it all over the Muslim world. He's speaking through dreams and visions to his people. But you're just everyday dreaming, and you'll, you should be able to know the difference. If God is speaking something to you through a powerful dream or vision, believe me, you won't have to wake up and go, I wonder what all that, man. What is God saying? Now, now maybe God does speak to you through some of those weird dreams, but I, I, I don't, he doesn't me. And I don't think that's necessarily one of the ways that God likes to communicate to us. So don't put too much stock. Don't go to somebody to interpret your dreams. Definitely don't come to me because I can't help you. You'll need Daniel for that. Daniel's the interpreter of dreams. He could probably help you out, but... Um, God says, hey, quit putting stock in your and listening to these dreams, which which is interesting. He said, which you cause to be dreamed. And the reality is the dreams that we have scientifically, we cause those dreams by our um, input, by our, our, our things, our experiences to be dreamed. And they come out of something in our mind. God says, don't put any stock in them. And then verse 10. 
Verse 9, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So he's talking about these false prophets. He has not sent them. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years, there's that 70 years are complete at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So the first promise there, and God says, I'm going to cause you to come home. You're going to get to come home. 70 years. I'm going to put you people on that planet called Earth. That rock that's spinning, and I'm going to let you struggle and experience life, but you get to come home. And so he says, 70 years you'll be in Babylon. Now, obviously, there was people that went into Babylon and died in Babylon, right? Never came home. But for those that went through, he says, you get to come home. And is that, 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 that blessing of hope. And then it says, our famous verse 13 or 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and of not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so God says, yeah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. You know, for us as husbands, we struggle with this idea um, in life, really, too. And it applies to our wives and to God. And I'm like, I know my wife loves me, but I don't know if she likes me. I don't know if she wants to, like, hang out with me or be around me. You know, like, does she like me? Do you like me? I know you love me, but, you know. And, and, and that same idea, that same struggle is true. God, I know God loves me. We just sang a song. Oh, how he loves me. He loves me like a hurricane. God's, God loved me, you know, the, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We know that God loves us. Does God like us? Does he like who I am? Sometimes we feel like, eh, probably not, you know, or maybe. And then what happens? We, we, we go into this um, religious bit, this religious routine where to answer that question, we say, well, if I'd read my Bible a little bit more, if I would pray more, if I would witness more, if I would serve more, if I would be more Christian, then, then God would like me more. And it just does that's religion. It just doesn't work. It's such a trap. God meets us in the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, Moses told the people, God told Moses to tell the people when they built the Ark of the Covenant, upon the top of the mercy seat is where I'll meet you. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, the, the, the bread of manna and the rod of Aaron that budded all represent the law and principles and do's and don'ts and, and the failures of man. And God said, I'm not going to meet you in the Ark of the Covenant where the, where the do's and don'ts are and where the your part is. He said, I'm going to meet with you on the mercy seat. And so we approach God in mercy. He loves you in spite of you. He, he, he likes you. I'll prove it to you real quick and then we'll be done. In the Psalms, the psalmist says in, in Psalm 139, just make a note. You don't necessarily need to turn there. In Psalm 139, 17 and 18, listen to this. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. And so, so, so David is pondering this same idea. Does God like me? And the psalmist there, David is, you know, Lord, do you like? And, and God shares and gives him this prophecy through the Psalms. And he says, he says, I think good thought. I think thoughts towards you as many as the sand is by the seashore. One grain of sand. Any idea how many sands there are by the seashores of the world? No idea. One egghead estimated that the number is is ten with with twenty two zeros, ten to the twenty second power behind it. That's a hundred billion times a hundred billion grains of sand on the on the earth. Some other egghead did the numbers and he said if you live a lifespan of seventy years, that would be seven good thoughts that God thinks about you every second of your life. Seven good thoughts a second. Seven, 14, 21, 35, 42. Somebody help me out. Just kidding. God just thought 49 good thoughts about you. And that's powerful, right? That's powerful that God likes us and he loves us. Now, it's inconceivable. You think, ah, like, how can that be? Can God really think that much about me that's what the word of god says and it, and not only that but those thoughts are good and he says i want to give you a future and a hope what is the hope the hope is that we get to go home the hope of glory gives us the strength to deal with life glory is being glorified in heaven having a glorified body being changed from this life into the next and so the the hope of glory gives us the strength to deal with life and he says, and, I, and you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And again, important is just these, these constant reminders that I love you. I think good thoughts toward you. I like you. And when you pray, God says, I'll listen. He's hearing you when you pray. And then he says in verse 13, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and you will seek me and find me when 
you search for me with all your heart. And so, you know, we've all heard people say, oh, I prayed and God didn't do nothing. I asked Jesus in my heart and nothing happened. You know, and then they'll go, oh, so we go, oh, really, God, he did, nothing happens. Watch. If you're a God, then strike me with lightning. See, your God doesn't exist. He didn't strike me with lightning. No, you're just an idiot. And because God has grace, he doesn't. But you didn't seek God with your whole heart. You didn't really seek the Lord. Because multiple times in the Bible, the Bible promises that if you seek God, you'll find him. And here he says that he makes a distinction that if we seek him with our whole heart, Maybe to try to illustrate that. If you drew a line on a piece of paper in your mind, and on one side of the line you put not listening or not seeking God with your whole heart, not listening, because when we're not listening, there's no way. And then on the other side, seeking God with our whole hearts. And maybe you, you figure, where are you on that spectrum right now? Are you not listening or are you seeking God with your whole heart? And maybe somewhere in the middle, and then draw an arrow on your line. And, and which way are you headed? Are you headed in the wrong direction or in the right direction? Because you're not standing still. Why don't we listen to God? We probably don't listen to God like I shared already is because we don't really want to hear what he has to say. And in that state, we're, we're, we're in a bad state. And to be closer to God and drawing close to God is seeking him with our whole hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. We're going to close in prayer today. No, no last song today. And uh, let you guys go and enjoy your football games or whatever it is you guys do on uh, New Year's Day. Um, just want to encourage you guys, seek the Lord with your whole heart. The Lord loves you. He's given you a future and a hope. He's got a promise that he's going to bring you home. And and again, I know each one of us deal with things. Life is hard and then we die type of thing. And so we go through things. You know, we're broken, we're weary. And, you know, I often, I want, I want so much for us to see real Christianity. And I want it to be real and not manufactured and fake and you know, and I pray and I ask God, I say, Lord, what can we do? We need to see this stuff work. And we, we know what the word says. And we know these promises that we have. And, and as, as people are going through really hard things, really real trials in their lives, we want to see your power. And let's just seek the Lord with, this, with our heart. And I promise you he's going to be found. I promise there's going to be victory. I promise that, 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 that it's going to get better and this too shall pass. And ultimately, we always keep focused through all these trials and all these tribulations. And I know when, uh, when my mother-in-law died, when Cindy died, you know, it was the idea that we're going to see her again, that there's a hope of heaven and that, that, that things are going to get well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for a new year. I pray your blessing upon each one in this new year in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great, happy new year.